Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. This is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast, Series 1, Episode 18, Two Days in Idaho. This is a short story I wrote with thoughts of possibly getting it published several years ago and decided I would just hold on to it and keep it in my hard drive on the computer. I posted the text on my blog, and if you don't read the blog, I'm going to read it to you now. I'm going to transport you from cold February into a warm July in Idaho. It's 6 a.m., and I'm jolted awake by vintage Rolling Stones blaring from the next room. It's coming from a record player, not an MP3 player, not a tape player, not a CD player, a record player, because that's how Eric rolls. My buddy Eric sneaks into my room to place a steaming cup of Java on the nightstand and urges me not to waste any more time sleeping when big fish await. I'm not a coffee person. If you ever met me, caffeine is the last thing I need. Right now, I've got my first cocktail flu in a long time, but it doesn't slow me down. I roll out of bed and into the cool July air near Sandpoint, Idaho. Through the window, the early morning light reflects like a mirror off Lake Pondere, one of the deepest lakes in the world. Though the lake beckoned in the distance, our destination was a local hidden fishing hole. This vacation wasn't designed as a fishing trip. My wife had intended to visit family and friends out west, with some fishing thrown in to appease me. Since I didn't know where or when I would fish, or what species I would target, I brought a 7-foot 5-weight rod and a 9-foot 6-weight rod, 
one large arbor reel with six weight line, and a box of miscellaneous flies intended for streams and lakes. I brought some spools of tippet and a couple straight rolls of monofilament for leader material. I was completely unprepared for pretty much any fishing trip one would encounter. We loaded up the fishing gear in Eric's 1960s era pumpkin orange Dodge Power Wagon. This lead gas guzzling beast had no interior decor, save for the spare bench that we hastily screwed into the wooden floor that morning, and there were no amenities. With much coughing and sputtering, the engine finally turned over and we were off. We creaked and jostled 20 snaking miles into the national forest on unpaved fire roads and seemingly no shock absorbers, feeling not unlike ice cubes in a pumpkin orange cocktail shaker. We almost hit a moose at one point. It was standing in the middle of the road. It was impossible to figure out where we were as the road endlessly switched back into the wilderness. That and Eric's wife used the topo map as a makeshift cushion to protect her from the springs protruding from the front bench of the truck. Her sitting on it prevented Eric from being able to reference. After about an hour of hairpin twists and turns, Eric and the wives finally dropped me off on a dusty turnout, where an old campfire was my only indication that others had ever made it this far into the wilderness. Their plan was to drive back up the dirt road to the next turnout park and follow the stream down to meet me as I fished upstream. Eric promised some beautiful waterfalls and to be prepared to catch a lot of fish. He wouldn't tell me where I was either to protect the stream. Those were his last words as I set off. I strung out my 7 foot 5 weight as the streams I had passed on the way up were rather small. This 6 weight would be overkill. I attached the large arbor reel. As the wheezing of the truck's engine faded, I began to hear the sound of rushing water. I suddenly felt like one of those Discovery Channel survival guys, getting dropped off in the wilderness and having to rely on my witch to get me out alive. So I did what they always advise and let the sound of the water be my guide. Instead of following the water downstream, I went upstream. Following a steep dirt pathway through the overgrowth ringing the campsite, I parted branches and weeds and wildflowers and entered the frigid water. Now I'd broken some toes recently on a canoe trip, so that felt quite nice to have them in ice cold water. No waders for me. I'm wearing long pants and a long sleeve shirt and a sun visor. My first impression of the stream was of its similarities to my home streams in the Shenandoah National Park. Small pocket water, long pools, boulders, and overhanging branches. The only immediate difference was the lack of suffocating humidity. The bank was carpeted with wildflowers. Wasps, beetles, bees, and butterflies buzzed loudly through the air as they flitted from flower to flower, gorging themselves on nectar and pollen. Without a vest, my phone box had to be wedged deep in my pants pocket for safekeeping. I took it out and inspected the various flies I had with me, with a good idea of what to compare it to along the stream's flowers. Like a beacon, a small terrestrial in the box stood out from the rest. This is a nameless buggy and quite simple fly. It has the silhouette of a plethora of aerial arthropods. This pattern is about a three-quarter inch strip of craft foam, black on the bottom and yellow on top. The fish see the black and I see the yellow. 
Two sets of black round rubber legs are tied in about a quarter way down for each end. It has a nice outline of the wasp along the bank. It was perfect. This pattern had not failed me in the summer months through several different states that I fished. I smashed the barb, tied it on, and cast to a small pocket behind a moderate-sized boulder. I saw a shadow and a splash. I set the hook and skated a tiny six-inch cutthroat across the current and released it after a quick photo. This and the second part of the dissimilarity between wherever I was in Idaho and Virginia. We don't have cutthroat in the Old Dominion. I worked my way upstream, casting behind and along boulders, along seams, and in deep riffles. There was beautiful pocket water. I caught trout after trout, ultimately losing count. The perfect little speckled gems averaged 5 to 9 inches. I wish I had my noodly three-weight rod and re small reel that I used to fish in the Shenandoah National Parks. My five-weight was obviously too big and had too much backbone for this type of fishing. The weather was perfect. What a day so far. The hangover was gone. Even if I still had it, I wouldn't have noticed because I was in cold water and bright sunshine. I was alone with no sign of anyone else around for miles. It would have been nice to have my fishing buddy Tom with me. He constantly outfishes me, so I'm his net and cameraman. I supply the flies since my impressionistic ones always outfish his Rembrandt-like flies. Tom and I alternate pools in water like this and snap each other's photos when a fish has landed. This time, I had each pool to myself. The water and fishing remained the same for about an hour or so. Then I arrived at the first set of waterfalls. I sat on the bank to observe. There was a three-foot waterfall with a deep plunge pool, forming a run with steep walls on either side. The walls were about rod length apart and continued for several feet. This section emptied into a broad tail out of about 15 feet wide and waist deep. The left bank was shaded by pines and the right was open to the sunshine. The right wall was exposed and had a shallow stillwater pool behind it. As I sat there observing, I saw a trout's nose poke through the surface film along the far bank where the wall entered the water. This nose made me salivate like one of Pavlov's dogs. I waded into the tail out and began false casting perpendicular to the current and threw the fly right up into the run, the seams and everywhere else. The foam bug, which had caught plenty of fish downstream, did nothing for me here. Nothing. I took out a spool of 6x tippet and tied on dropper after dropper. Pheasant tails, Tom's go-to nymph, caddis emergers, caddis nymphs, stoneflies, and brassies. No luck. How could I have caught so many fish earlier with one cast per pool, and now I'm getting skunked? What was I missing? It was time to reassess. Dries and droppers didn't work. I started thinking, hmm, waterfalls, plunge pools, deep water, eureka, big heavy streamer time. I nipped off my dry and dropper rig and stuck them into the meager selection of flies in the foam box in my pocket. I took out my favorite streamer. I call it the bacon fly because everybody loves bacon. It's like Eric's truck, big and loud. It's got a long hook wrapped in heavy wire, a tungsten cone head, peacock estaz body, a tail made of zonker strips, and a thick webby cocktail hackle. Did I mention rubber legs tied in at the cone? It's a massive streamer with a massive success rate. 
I tied it on with a loop knot on straight monofilament of about 10 pounds. I smashed the barb and moved in. I'm now standing on a large boulder where the wall opens up. I cast upstream to the waterfall and let it sink. I strip, pop the tip of my rod, strip, pop the tip, strip, pop the tip, till the flies at my feet. Nothing. Next, I throw the fly against the wall, let it drop into the water, sink, strip, pop the tip, strip, pop the tip, strip, pop the tip. The fish don't seem to want it. I'm getting confused. The fly is closing into my feet and I feel a tug. The hook is set and the game is on. The fish emerges from along the boulder and I see a huge, bright, cotton white mouth on this fish. The brightest white mouth I've ever seen in the water belonging to a fish. The fish is at my feet when it spits back the hook. Nothing I had caught or seen in the stream so far was this big. I've never seen a fish that big in a stream this small anywhere in the world where I've fished. Adrenaline is coursing through my veins and tunnel vision narrows my line of sight to only the stream. How did I lose that fish? Would my wife and friends believe me? Where's Tom when I need him? If I was steelheading in New York and my friend Joe was with me, he'd let out a string of colorful expletives at me as he does when I lose a big fish in the big waters where he lives. I take deep breaths. I gather myself and I get back to fishing. Nothing. The giant fish probably has a sore mouth and is hiding or knows I'm here and won't bite or worse, all of the above. I move from boulder into the sunny side and climb up the wall. It's tough going. I've got my rod in my mouth. And my fingertips are scrambling for anything to grip. I make it to the top with busted up knees. I look down into the run. The water is dark in all sides and turquoise in the middle with foam and bubbles under the falls. This vantage point yields a whole new perspective compared to my previous location. I look around and see nothing moving in the water. I'm reminded of those magic eye posters that require intense focus before your eyes pick up the details within, and you see a tugboat or a dinosaur. Think back to the Seinfeld episode. At first, I see nothing, and then all of a sudden, there it is, against the far wall, parallel to the rocks and in the current facing upstream. But wait, there's more. Another fish in front of it. I cast and let the fly sink along the far wall. Strip, strip, and woof. First cast is a charm. The fish is on, but he darts into a confined space, deep in the water by the falls. I can't land him up here. I hold my short rod up and painfully slide down the rock while keeping the line taut. He's still on. I can't see the water because the rocks are in the way. I reach my rod arm up so the line won't shred on the rocks. He pulls out line. I'm on the move and I've got him. The hook is surely set. I am not going to lose this fish. I don't know what I have on, but it's massive. We're both fighting. Up and down the pool he goes and I chase after him. From tail out of the pools to the falls and back. I'm in the sunny shallows and my forearm is on fire. The muscles burning with the fight of him pulling the rod and me pulling back. The rod is bent like a horseshoe and doesn't have the backbone for this fish. I now wish I had my beefy six weight that was left sitting in the truck. I don't know how long we've been at it. Up and down the pools and runs as fish swims with no sign of yielding. Time for a change of plans. I begin to back up. There's a shallow pebbly pool I think I could bring him to. Tom, where are you with your net? I didn't have room to pack my net. Crap. Tom would have had his, 
but it probably would have been a small one that you hold attached by a magnet to your vest. What I need is a canoe or big landing net. The fish seems to sense I have a history of losing big fish like this. He's giving me the middle fin. I can't get him to hand. I have no net and he won't budge to be pulled into the shallows. This seems to go on and on forever. Finally, we keep fighting until he yields just enough that I can beach him on that pebbly shore. I shout and scream and do a little dance. I drop my rod next to him and snap a few pictures. This fish measures from the butt of the fly rod up to the first stripping guide, about 27 inches afterwards by my calculations. It's fat as a football and eyes as big as those of my schnauzer. His belly is a whitish cream, marble-sized spots along his side, and a mouth bigger than my fist. I later find out it's a bull trout, Savalinus confluentus. Now when I'm writing this down, I make sure to capitalize the first letter in genus and lowercase in species, and italicize both words, as my ichthyology professor, Dr. Wheeland, would have stressed in college. I've caught big fish before, but never a bull trout, and never a stream this small. I was ecstatic. I later learned it was a bull trout because of the picture of it on the stamp on my fishing license and from the signs along Lake Pondere that stated, you are in bull trout country. So now I've got this fish in hand. I had a flashback to my AEG Trout Bum Diaries Volume 1 DVD when the guy is solo fishing for sea-run brown trout in Argentina, and he films himself with his trophy fish. I set my camera to movie mode, balanced it on the rock in front of me, and began filming. I took a short film holding the trout to the camera first lengthwise, then pointing the fish to the camera. The final shot is me holding the fish as I walk him to the water. I hold him up for the camera one last time and dip him back into the frigid drink. He's back in and breathing. I stabilize the trout and run to shut the movie off. The fish and I stand there in the current, looking upstream. I walk us deeper into the current of that frigid water. My knees begin to numb. My muscles tighten. My forearms and wrists no longer have any feeling. The fish is just idling in the current with my left hand holding it behind its pectoral fins and my right hand holding it, keeping it elevated just behind its tail. I can't get over how large and beautiful the qualities are to this fish. It moves his tail as if to say he wants to go. But I know after a fight like that, the fish is stressed. It needs time to recover. Too much lactic acid is built up in its muscles, and this fish could soon go into shock, flip over, belly up, float downstream and die. And that would ruin my day and that fish's life. I begin to alternate hands. One hand holds the tail while the other one defrosts in the warm Idaho air. I continue doing this for minute after minute. The minutes pass and I feel strength return as his body begins to undulate slowly in the water. Ten minutes later, his fins perk up and tail pulses. His head moves side to side. My hands gently open and the fish glides deeper next to a rock. I slide out of the water to start warming up my numb legs. The fish sat there for 20 more minutes while I returned to work the pool with the same fly. I continue to fish and have fewer small fish chase my streamer, but I catch nothing. It's now 1.50, and the big guy has moved to another rock and starts beginning to slide upstream back to his lay. He cruises back to the pool where he was hooked and disappears. I'm satisfied that he's regained momentum and is less stressed and can go about his life now. No one is there to share one of my greatest fishing accomplishments. I wish my wife and friends had come down the mountain to see me 
and my smile that went from ear to ear. I climbed the rock wall adjacent to the falls. Once I'm on top of the falls, I look back and take a picture of the whole area, where I just spent at least an hour. Upstream from the deep pool, it's all shallow. Cutthroat territory again. I nip off my streamer, tie on some, tip it, and add on the foam bug again. I continued working my way upstream and caught several delicate and beautiful cutthroats on that terrestrial pattern. I cast to a bulge of water just behind a large boulder. I see a shadow and a splash and I set the hook in a cut. At that moment I hear, Bob! From the forested banks of the stream. My wife is the only one that refers to me as Bob. I couldn't see where it came from, but I could easily spot McGuire. Eric's bleached white dog, well he should be normally bleached, but the dog is so filthy he's actually kind of green from chlorophyll and mud. He stands out against the dark woods, and I now see Eric, his wife, and my wife. They've been walking downstream for hours as I took so much time to move upstream. My wife was a sight for sore eyes. She had ice cold water and snacks. Eric asked how I had done and I said I could retire from fly fishing with the day I just experienced. It would only get better. They said they had seen huge trout swimming around in the pools upstream and that we should head up there. So we started moving back upstream towards the car. The hikers sat and refueled and warmed themselves on the warm rocks. I continued to fish. I had taken my time fishing upstream and thus they had to walk so much farther down and they needed that break. My audience watched as I moved up another set of waterfalls. Deeper water meant streamer time again. I nipped off the tippet and tied on my streamer, the bacon fly, pointing my rod tip at the corner of the pool and said to my wife, that's where I want my fly to land. My first cast was to the left. My second cast was even worse. It wasn't easy aiming such a large weighted fly on such an unbalanced rig. Third cast was the bullseye, and on the second strip, I landed a 17-inch bull trout. My wife couldn't believe that I actually called the shot where the fish was going to be. That has to do with experience with reading water, a previous podcast of mine. I pulled another bull trout out of the plunge pool and broke off a third. Now I'm down to two bacon flies. I moved upstream and around a bend. Everyone else remained downstream and basked in the sun on those warm rocks. I came to a large set of falls with what appeared to be a bottomless pool, followed by ripples and a broad pool with a steeple on either side. I moved in with the bacon fly and crouched so the fish couldn't see me. I began working my streamer from riffle down to the broad pool. I have never seen fish this aggressive. Every time I cast the fly and began a strip, seven to eight bull trout in the 17 to 20 inch range would dart out from along the wall and chase my fly. They were all fighting to eat that one bait fish or whatever else they thought it was. Because of their aggressive nature, I landed several more, lost an equal amount, and broke one off. The day was getting longer, and I only had one streamer left and one day left of my license. Did I want to keep fishing and lose my streamer, which is what these fish wanted, or take a break, head back to Eric's, and fish tomorrow? The hikers were all beat up from bushwhacking through the stream, and they were fighting a fierce case of the beer tooth from Eric's kegerator. Eric had recently put in a quarter keg of New Belgium's fat tire, and we can't get that in Virginia, so it's pretty tempting to start headed back to the car. I called it a day, cut off my fly, and reeled in. We climbed out of the canyon and hiked up to the car. After sandwiches at the truck, we piled back in for the bone-jarring ride back to civilization. 
the smell of gasoline fumes making us nauseous the entire way. I was looking forward to several cold beers from Eric's kegerator. That night we had one of the most phenomenal meals I've ever experienced. It was a small restaurant where the chef owner came out after each course to greet us. It was homemade enchiladas with black beans, sour cream, salsas. The woman made everything herself. We sat outside, smacked mosquitoes on our legs, and drank long necks of beer to the wee hours. The next day was spent on the lake on Eric's friend's boat. Everyone took turns tubing and wakeboarding. Their adrenaline rushed for the vacation. I sat back on the boat and basked in the sun. Yesterday, I had my adrenaline rush and was content to take in the beauty and warm air that is Idaho. After that, we packed up and drove back to Seattle. Thus, two days in Idaho. I hope you enjoyed my short story about a little vacation in Idaho. I hope to get back soon to visit Eric and his lovely wife and hang out at their house, which was a formal, former apple orchard. Um, any questions you want, ask me, rob at robsnowwhite.com. Please leave a comment if you'd like. And uh, you can always reach my website, robsnowwhite.com. I thank you for downloading.